Welcome to a 2015 Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Speaker Series podcast sponsored by Kessler Foundation. Guest speaker Dr. David Lebon presents using statistical algorithms to characterize Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia spectrum patients. Dr. Lebon is a professor in the Department of Neurology at Drexel University College of Medicine. This presentation was recorded on Wednesday, September 30th, 2015 at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research. Dr. Laban is a professor in the Department of Neurology at Drexel University College of Medicine, where his responsibilities include inpatient and outpatient neuropsychological assessment, um, as well as teaching medical residents and fellows. And that is in addition to his um, extensive research activities, where he focuses on the neurobiology and neuropsychology of degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. Um, he's a, he has an extensive grant history, including an ongoing R01. Um, in addition, he has received several teaching and research awards from the National Academy of Neuropsychology, as well as the International Neuropsychological Association, as well as some Pennsylvania associations. So I'm not going to go into the whole list in the interest of time. Um, so he will be presenting today on using statistical algorithms to characterize Alzheimer's disease and vascular spectrum patients. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Levine. Thank you, Nancy. Well, thank you everybody for turning out this morning. And I'd like to thank Dr. DeLuca and Dr. Barrett for inviting me up this morning and giving me this opportunity uh, to present some of the research that my colleagues and I have been doing. And um, at first glance, it might seem a little strange, if not bizarre, that I'm coming to you here to talk about dementia, uh, as opposed to stroke or TBI or some of the other uh, groups that Kessler is widely known for. But one of the things that I would ask, or what I'm hoping to be sort of like the real take-home message here in this talk, is really the methodology and the algorithms that were brought to bear in order to look at some of the questions that I'm going to be talking about. Because I think it's very translational. So I think that the idea of using a statistical modeling technique, which is something which I'm sure many of us understand, I'm talking about using things like, like, like cluster analysis and other multivariate techniques with respect to neuropsychological data to extract latent structure or to look for latent variables. So let me start by um, saying that, um, so um, um, this red button is our, Oh, and you know what? It would be nice if I did this. Okay. So the common view is that Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia are two distinct separate illnesses, right? Of course. That's what we've always learned. That's what we've always understood. That's what we uh, take our exams for. But actually, one of the things that we're learning over the last decade is that there's a great deal of heterogeneity with respect to the dementia disorders. And I think this is true with almost any other neurobehavioral syndrome. And I think that many of the papers that I've been uh, fortunate to publish recently really talks about the inherent heterogeneity that we see with respect to dementia and dementia syndromes. Because you know the question really becomes, pr very practically, that if you were going to do a trial a clinical trial, and 
treatment, of course, is very central to activities here at Kessler. But if you were going to do a trial for dementia, for Alzheimer's disease, who do you want in your trial? Who do you want in your trial for Alzheimer's disease? It's not a trick question. <laughs> you want patients with Alzheimer's disease. It's not a trick question, but the answer can be extremely tricky. So what I'm going to be able to show you here is a way in which to deal with inherent heterogeneity, how to make sense of the heterogeneity, and how to extract phenotypic syndromes from uh, diagnostic categories which are clinical and I think very gross in terms of how, how they, they are used. So as I said, heterogeneity with respect to Alzheimer's disease is not new. We have known for years that there are subtypes with respect to what is understood as an insidious onset amnestically driven neurodegenerating dementia syndrome. What I want to point out here is this earlier article done in Britain where uh, two uh, subtypes are talked about, uh, the so-called amnestic subtype, which is the type of, of Alzheimer's disease that most of us really understand, and then there's sort of a parietal subtype, which I believe in this paper really talked more about some visual spatial impairment as well as some language impairment. So if you're conversant at all with the literature with respect to Alzheimer's disease, you're aware that when we talk about subtypes, you know, there are these three entities. There's this is logopenic subtype, posterior cortical atrophy, and the so-called frontal variant. Uh, I, there's absolutely uh, conclusive evidence for the aphasic and the uh, posterior cortical atrophy subtype. There's really not as much, although there is one newer paper now, which I've read, which talks about the so-called frontal variant. So heterogeneity with respect to Alzheimer's disease has always been part of the picture. It's just never really been talked about. It's never really been something which has really come to the center with respect to our, our attention. It's not really been researched. I want to call your attention to this paper that was done some years ago by uh, Alex Martin, which uh, really, I mean, I, you know, I remember when this paper was published, and it was actually quite, uh, quite interesting because that was an, a very uh, early piece of work where you could show differences with respect to dementia syndromes on the basis of not only the neuropsychology, but also the radiologic substrate as well. So really, heterogeneity is really where we're at right now. Uh, depending upon who you talk to, you get different degrees of, well, okay, I'll buy it or I won't buy it, okay? You talk to some people, not so much. You talk to other people, uh, there's uh, a lot more enthusiasm. So, oops, wrong way. So it turns out that uh, this paper done by Melissa Murray is extremely interesting. This was a paper uh, that reviewed a large uh, series of, uh, of, uh, of brains, of autopsy material. Uh, I believe Dr. Murray was looking at um, the occurrence of, of neurofibrillary tangles, which is one of the hallmark signatures uh, that we believe to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. And the thing which really struck me about this work, and this paper is cited quite a lot, 
is that she really finds evidence for three subtypes. She finds a rather conventional subtype where pathology can be found throughout the medial temporal lobe as well as in other posterior and other association cortical areas of, of, of the brain. But she also finds uh, uh, evidence for oops, this uh, posterior association subtype as well. And, and, uh, and this limbic subtype is really meant to describe uh, density with respect to neuropathology, which is, which is combined to the uh, temporal area. So here's a question. Why? Why did this occur? Is it random? Well, it could be random. But uh, I remember one day sitting in rounds and Dr. Geshwin said, there's no such thing as a random event in medicine. So I suspect that this is not random, that there's some underlying neurobiology here that we really don't appreciate. But let me again come back to my original rhetorical question when I began. So who do you want in your trial? Do you want all 889 people? Or maybe you don't want all of these people. Maybe you want only some of them. Well, it would always obviously depend upon the mechanism of action with respect to your drug. But the point being here is that there is a family of underlying syndromes, and there's a family, there's a collection of phenomenon, which is now currently going under the rubric of, of, of Alzheimer's disease. A couple of other points about, about this paper is that in all three of these groups, uh, Dr. Murray finds measurable degree of Lewy bodies and a measurable degree of vascular pathology. And it was fine, it's not an, uh, uh, a, a trivial phenomenon, which you find commonly in autopsy material. But here's the question, how do you factor this in? When do Lewy bodies matter? When does white matter matter? When does vascular disease exercise an effect? What really drives the dementia? That will be critical questions to address in order to power your trial, in order to really make predictions that your treatment is actually going to be efficacious. Okay, so, okay, so this, this citation may be a little old. Now, I don't think this is the the latest citation, but this is uh, a paper from the MRC epidemiologic study in Britain. And there's been a series of these papers which you can find. I believe there are three or four. So most of the work which is being done in dementia is being done in the dementia clinic, right? So what happens in the dementia clinic? Well, people knock on your door and they say, you know what? I have a problem. Or more commonly, my family member has a problem and patients are brought in, you do your workup, okay, and that's how things go, okay. Well, this is an epidemiologic study where, a study that was based in the community. So this is not a clinic study. And the reason why I think this uh, paper is so interesting and the reason why I think this paper speaks to the notion of heterogeneity is if you look at a number of these bullet points, it's really quite disconcerting I mean, if what you're looking for here is a straight shot between insidious onset, okay, uh, amyloid, uh, uh, decline in memory, uh, tau, uh, dementia, 
you, you're going to draw blood, okay? You'll find evidence for whatever. Then you'll uh, administer your medication. Well, these data would suggest that there's really a lot more going on, at least by the time the brain reaches the point where there's autopsy. So in this paper, vascular pathology really played an important role. And I think this quote at the bottom of the slide really says it, okay? In the aggregate, research shows that textbook assumptions about the pathological basis of dementia as discrete disease entities is an oversimplification. So if that's true, how do we as neuroscientists, how do we as individuals who are trying to cope in understanding some of these relationships, what do we do? What would be the strategies that we might want to bring to bear? Okay, a couple of historic uh, notes which I think are interesting. This, of course, is a picture of Professor Alzheimer. And this is a picture of Augusta, who is his first patient. Uh, all of the, the clinical material as well as the, the pathological material available from Alzheimer regarding Augusta has been published. You can actually read his uh, mental status exam. It's dis disconcertingly very similar to what we do now as neuropsychologists, to be perfectly honest, okay? To, just to show you that it really hasn't changed that much in 100 years. But I'm showing this to you because neither of these cases today, these are the two, this is the alpha and beta case. These are the two first cases, okay? But neither of these cases today would be diagnosed with a generic form of Alzheimer's disease. It turns out, and how this happened, I have no idea, but pathologic samples from both brains uh, survived two world wars and was found in some lab, in some uh, uh, cabinet drawer tucked away in Germany and using newer technology, what was discovered here is that neither of these cases really have many of the typical pathologic characteristics. This is very much similar to the fact that, that, uh, that Broca's, uh, the brain of Broca's patient, Tan, was at, at some point found, a CAT scan was done, and you could actually see that in fact where the lesions uh, were. But again, this underscores the fact that that simple statements about the nature of dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease or even vascular dementia, are really, uh, I think, uh, you have to be, be, to, be, to be very careful because this is really turning out to be a much more complex endeavor than what we had originally thought. Okay, so this is um, the consensus panel, the, the revision of the consensus panel diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease, okay, which was done recently. And all the, uh, uh, there's a consensus panel diagnosis criteria for MCI, for Alzheimer's disease, for, for, for uh, preclinical pre dementia. And, you know, for my money, and they're, they're, they're fine. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's all good. But, you know, I don't really find that they're that different than the original McCann-Drachman criteria from 1984. There are some differences. There's now some... Uh, understanding that the phenotype can really be an amnesia, a language disorder, or, or a disexecutive disorder, which is, which is, which is true. But I'm, I'm going to show you how that actually plays out. 
And what's also interesting here is finally, after a career, and I mean a career, of doing work in vascular disease, a lot of the mainline uh, uh, dementia patients now acknowledge that vascular disease plays a part and should be accounted for. But in this paper, there's no recommendation as to where you draw the line. Like, how do you know when white matter matters? How do you know when the vascular disease is an important part of the dementia syndrome? How do you know what exactly the white matter disease or microinfarcts or microbleeds or any other of a whole panoply of vascular lesions are playing a significant role with respect to the phenotypic expression of the dementia, number one, and what impact is that going to have with your medication? Because what, what does a medication do? Okay, meds do only do one thing, just does, just does one thing. Whatever it does, it only, it, it only will do that one thing. So if you have other pathology, if you have other pathophysiologic substrate, which you're not accounting for, then it would be a reasonable expectation that that medication that does only one thing may not do that one thing quite as well as you would hope. Okay, so let me show you some data. This data was published last year, I believe, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. This uh, are a group of uh, 200 uh, patients or so that were seen in the dementia clinic and at the time that they were seen, they were diagnosed with what was then some of the current diagnostic criteria uh, that were available. Uh, the McCann-Drachman criteria for AD, Helena Choi's criteria for ischemic vascular dementia, which appeared in neurology in 1992. So what is done here, what I'm showing you here, are the demographics based on two clinical uh, uh, dementia syndromes. Now, what I want to point out to you is this Hunke leukoareosis scale. Hunke, uh, that is Carmen Hunke, who was a very well-known uh, neurologist in Barcelona, Spain. And in 1990, she published a paper in the Archives of Neurology where she lays out a simple visual rating scale on how to measure white matter. And I kind of like have run with that because I, uh, for many of the papers that I've written over the years about uh, Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, I don't use clinical diagnosis as my grouping variable, but I will group patients on the basis of this very simple visual rating scale. So this visual rating scale goes from 0 to 40. I, I, I had a slide that really laid it out in detail, but I didn't want to take up uh, time really going over that. But what I want to point out is that a 16 on the, on the, uh, on the Hunke uh, LA scale is a lot of white matter alteration. It really is. I mean, it's really something that a blind man with a stick can see on, uh, on uh, 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 MRI. So what really is distinguishing these two groups, aside from the trivial differences with respect to the, to the demographics, is that these guys do have as a group a lot and quite obvious white matter alterations. This is significant for a number of reasons. To get into ADNI, for example, if you access the, uh, the, the, the ADNI data set, uh, there may not be as much white matter alterations because they try to exclude 
uh, patients with presumed uh, vascular disease. Some of the other uh, publicly available uh, data sets, I, I don't think that this is quite uh, uh, as much of a problem. Okay, so we're starting out with about 225 people who were clinically diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. And uh, this shows you, I mean, I'm, for this crowd, I'm sure that you guys are very familiar with what, what, with, with what white matter looks like on uh, MRI scans. Uh, here are the periventricular caps and halos that we see. Deep white matter over here, some of the uh, white matter perhaps involving the subcortical U, U fibers. This would not be an, an atypical scan that you would see for somebody who presents for a dementia workup. Okay, so this is the neuropsychological protocol that I subjected to analysis. A couple of things that I want to point out, okay? First of all, I gave um, five tests, just five tests, and I extracted six parameters from those tests. This mental control subtest is the Boston revision of the original Wexler Memory Scale mental control subtest. I am probably the only researcher in the world who has ever used this. This is something I learned from Edith Kaplan. I've used this to great effect over the years. And the algorithm that uh, I derive from this is a percent correct that you get by looking at the correct responses and the errors from these three tasks. Letter fluency, as I'm sure, is a task which is well known to this group. Boston naming, animal fluency. The PVLT is, stands for the Philadelphia Verbal Learning Test, which is a test of my own invention. It's a nine-word serial list learning task, which is constructed exactly like the CVLT. And when we constructed it, it was because a 16-word list was just overwhelming for a mildly dementia person with a mini-mental of, of 20 or, or, or 21. I've used the PVLT now in numerous publications, and it actually works quite well, and will give you pretty much the same information as a CVLT format. So what I did here is I have, and I did this by design, two measures of presumed executive functioning, two measures of, of language or lexical access, and two measures of memory. And I chose delay-free recall and delay recognition because as we have learned by looking at patients who have true amnesia but who may not be demented, really it's the difference between delay-free recall and delay recognition which in part describes oral operation define whether or not you're truly dealing with a true amnesia versus some other kind of memory problem. So using these six parameters, what I did is I subjected them to this latent class analysis. Now latent class analysis is a person-centered technique by which to group data. It's very much like cluster analysis. It's unlike um, uh, factor analysis or principal component analysis because the focus of this analysis is, in, is, is, in extract, is, ex, is to extract people or patients who can be grouped according to the parameters that you put into the analysis. So in doing latent class analysis, this is what we found. From the two groups of patients who were diagnosed clinically, latent class analysis suggests 
that there are four groups. Two single domain groups over here, and two multi-domain groups over here, and these guys and these guys are distinguished in part by the severity of their neuropsychological impairment. So what you see here is that the amnestic guys, they are amnestic. So on delay-free recall, okay, which goes from zero to nine, nine it, it's a nine-word list, okay, after a delay, the mean recall is like non-existent, and the recognition score, which is a percent, which this is the algorithm from, from the original CVLT, uh, is almost a chance. What you also find is a single domain disexecutive group. So what we see here is a very low score on this mental control subtest, modest output with respect to um, uh, uh, um, letter fluency. And then what we also find is that these two single domain groups completely double dissociate from each other. Okay? Over here, we have a problem with executive control, okay? But uh, their memory testing is really not that impaired, and vice versa. What we have over, over here, again, are two groups of patients who look like they have a mixed phenotype, who are distinguished with respect to the severity of their illness. And what I should point out is that these four groups emerged controlling for these demographic variables. So again, let me ask the rhetorical question. Who do you want in your trial? Who do you want in your $100 million trial that hopefully is going to help improve, if not cure, Alzheimer's disease? Look at the heterogeneity that you see on this slide. All these patients presented with insidious and progressive onset and, and course, but the phenotypic characteristics are very different from one group to the next. So what I'm showing you here is that when you diagnose patients using conventional clinical cri criteria, okay, it's like taking a sledgehammer and trying to hammer a tack. You can do it. It can be done. Okay, but you better exercise great care because if you'll wind up really whacking your finger. Okay, so what this is really telling us here is that this is a much more nuanced phenomenon, a much more nuanced clinical phenomenon than what we ever really understood. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so factor analysis is referred to, and I, I believe, and I have to confess, I am absolutely not an expert on this. I really rely on my biostat people. But a factor analysis is best referred to as a variable center approach. So, what you're doing is you can take these six parameters, and what you'll get is a factor structure. Okay. And what you would hope to get might be is a factor structure that reflects declarative memory or language, or executive control, or maybe what you would find uh, uh, with this group of variables, you'd find evidence for a combined memory language factor versus a disexecutive factor. 
what latent class analysis does and cluster analysis. I mean, anybody who, who can use SBSS, uh, and, and you get a very similar solution if you use cluster analysis. It's just that the people that I'm working with like latent class analysis and they insist that we do it this way. So, but it's really not, it's really not that different. But latent class analysis is referred to as a person-centered technique. Because what we're now doing here is we're trying to use these parameters to group individuals in what's called a class or a group. When I use the, 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 the real um, uh, hard and fast uh, biostat people really don't like it when I use the word group in, in talking about latent class analysis. It's really best def defined as, as a class. But as far as I can tell, there's not any real difference. Yes? Yes. Good question. Okay. So in cluster analysis, uh, as has been pointed out, there are options where you can, where you can, on an a priori basis, select the number of clusters that you want, or there are options when you let the data speak for itself and it will yield the number of clusters which the data set feels that is sufficient. Here, there's no hard and fast rule as to where you draw the line. So that's a very good point. And that's something that, that, that I need to spend a lot of time in my methods sections when I really write this up. The, um, what's usually done here is that, is that once you get below uh, being able to classify 10% of your total N into a class or to a group, then it's believed that that's, you, you've really reached, reached your, 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 your limit. So, so there's actually, uh, as a little bit of art to doing latent class analysis because there are other parameters that you have to consider uh, in order to come to a final decision as to where you want uh, your class structure to be or how you want your class structure to be formed. So this is, uh, this is not something which I personally can do because it's not on SBSS. That's, that's what I learned <laughs> back in the day going to the Harvard uh, 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 Computing Center with the uh, 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 IBM uh, punch cards, but after that, like I'm done. So, so that's why I have graduate <laughs> students and other colleagues uh, who can do these more exotic, these more uh, newer uh, modeling techniques. Okay, so now what I'm going to show you is we're going to bevel into each of these tests and look at these groups. And what we're going to ask is, okay, so all right, so now we have four groups. Okay, and it looks like we have a single domain, this executive, a single domain, a nestic, and we have these two mixed groups. But okay, is there anything else that we can extract from our neuropsych data? And you know, I was trained to uh, look at the errors and the process by which uh, patients uh, present on a neuropsych protocol. And I was trained that in fact, the specificity with respect to brain and behavior is usually more often found in the analysis of the errors and in the analysis of the process than in the correct score. I mean, when you, when you think about it, you know, a scale score of what? Of, um, of what? Of six on block design. What does that mean? Well, you've scored at the ninth percentile. Well, okay, that's not good, but, <laughs> but, or maybe, Maybe, maybe it doesn't matter. But if you look at what was done, how it was done, 
you can make greater inference with respect to why it was done. Okay. So the first thing we're going to look at here is some radiologic data here, and we've actually done a little bit more of this. We have a new paper that was just published also in the Journal of, of Alzheimer's Disease that looked at the radiology much more closely. But what we're able to do here is to dissociate some of these groups looking at um, uh, white matter alteration as well as hippocampal volume. And it, this is what I really found to be a little surprising. Okay? Because if you're talking about a purely amnestic group, patients with amnesia, where in the brain do you expect to find the neuropathology? Of course, in the medial temporal lobe, in the hippocampus, correct? But actually, it was these guys who had most compromise with respect to hippocampal volume. And that was unexpected. That's not what I was looking for. What I thought that I would find would be find some relative dissociations between these guys with respect to white matter and gray matter volume, but that's not exactly how the data turned out. So the fact that the disexecutive guys really have a lot of white matter alteration is to be expected because I welcomed uh, patients into my sample who had white matter alterations on their MRI scans in the first instance. But th these Honke scores are really very modest, okay? So for these guys, you know, it's measurable. You can see that, that I mean, you would, probably be, you would probably comment upon that. I think, you know, if Dr. Barrett was like looking at a scan and, uh, and seeing this level of, of, of white matter disease, it would be something that would be taken un, uh, into consideration. This is really very low, very low. So really, the thing about this slide, which is most interesting uh, uh, for my money, is the fact that it's this moderate group which has the most compromise with respect to the medial temporal lobe structure. Yes? Is the time from first symptom the same? You know, uh, I, I, I get asked that question. And the honest answer is that as best as I yeah. can determine. You know, most, for this, at the time that I collected these data and where I collected them and the cohort, uh, the, the histories that I was getting would be two to three year onset. But when it was, but, 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 but you know, the mini mental scores are, uh, uh, yeah, the same. Yes. That's true. That, that, that's absolutely true. And that's, that's actually something that, that, that we'll come uh, uh, back to as we get uh, a little further into the talk. Okay, so this is a slide which displays some of the behavior from the mental control test, which I showed you. This slide is from a paper that Melissa Lamar and I published in 2007. And what we did here is that we took performance on this test and we broke it out into three test epochs, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we wanted to see to what extent uh, performance varied as a function of test epoch. And the reason why we were interested in that, because at the time, as I am still very interested in, I'm very enamored with Fuster's model of frontal lobe functioning, Fuster's model of executive control. Because at the heart of Fuster's model is the notion of time. 
or the more time necessary to bring a task to completion, Fuster would say, the greater <coughs> and more resource from frontal systems, frontal lobe uh, uh, structure would be necessary. And what we found here is that for patients with low white matter disease, patients who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, patients with moderate to severe white matter disease, or patients who might be diagnosed with a vascular uh, uh, dementia, we found that these slopes are very different. So these guys they decline from the beginning to the middle portion of the task, but there's no further decline. Whereas for these guys, it's a straight shot down, straight shot. So why do I call it the Titanic effect? Well, you know, you're racing across the Atlantic in a boat, right? Okay, here these guys strike the iceberg and they glance off of it and they limp into New York Harbor, okay? <laughs> these guys, okay, smack right into the iceberg, okay? And we know what the outcome was, right? Yeah, okay. So I use the term Titanic effect really as a tongue-in-cheek way in which to talk about the negative slope that you'll see on executive tests when you look at output or performance as a, either as a function of time to completion or if you break up tests into test components or test epochs. Because you could say that, you know, it could have been that you have two parallel lines, but that's not what, what, what we found. So now in our cluster determined groups, this is what we found. This is interesting, because what we found here is that we looked at the slope, which is the same um, uh, calculation as this, okay? We found that indeed the disexecutive guys have a, uh, uh, a very striking uh, uh, slope, but so do these, mix, these uh, moderate mixed guys, okay? And you see it here as well, okay? So you f also see that in a new sample that when you look at executive functioning, what underlies the disexecutive impairment is not just that you obtain a, a low score. You obtain a low score for a reason. And the reason is that you have a hard time sustaining and maintaining that mental set. And the reasons for, for that really would be uh, a very uh, uh, interesting and active domain for future research. Okay, so let's look at some other prior research. So this is a uh, paper that we published many years ago. This was Tanya Giovanetti's journeyman publication back when she was in graduate school, okay? And this is an analysis of animal fluency. A test which we all know, a test which we all give, a test which is very familiar to us. So what I'm showing you here are two examples of animal fluency output, one from a patient diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and one diagnosed clinically with vascular dementia. And what do you immediately discern when you look at the output? Well, we were talking about um, semantic knowledge uh, this morning, and what you can see here is that although the output is modest in terms of the number of responses, there is inherent semantic structure for, for, for this person. Two equines, two felines, two, two, two canines. So this patient where the mini-mental is 21, and this patient where the mini-mental is, 
is 20, although the number of words do not distinguish either the two individuals or the two groups. It's the order in which the words come out that really will tell you something about whether or not this is perhaps an executive phenomenon or this is perhaps both an executive as well as a posterior driven uh, degradation in semantic knowledge or accessing semantic knowledge. So what we're able to do here, what we did here in this paper, we were able to actually measure semantic connectiveness. So what we were able to do was to enumerate seven categories of attributes about animals. Okay? And there's a whole backstory as to how I went around doing it. I went to the Academy of Natural Science in Philadelphia, had to like consult with the um, librarian about the text about you know how animals are actually classified because I because I want I wanted this to be I really wanted this to be I didn't want to bring any up I wanted this I wanted the zoologist to tell me how this is done I didn't want to do it so what you can do here is if, if for example you have a tiger lion they will match on all seven attributes okay so what this will give you is it will give you uh, the average number of shared attributes between each successive response. So what I mean here is that you'll get the average, so you'll calculate the attributes between horse and mule, between mule and lion, between lion and cougar, and at the end, when you divide by the number of responses, it will give you a number that will help you operationally define either access to semantic information or perhaps a measure of degradation of semantic knowledge. So what do we see here? Well, obviously, this is going to be really low, and this one is going to be rel relatively intact. So what do you think is going to happen when I show you the clustered determined groups? Let's find out. <laughs> OK. So again, so for, for here, for, for uh, in this paper, the average percent uh, of responses in cluster is markedly different for patients with white matter disease versus low white matter disease. And again, keep in mind, folks, this is really interesting. We're talking about groups that have demonstrable and visible neuropathology on, their, on, on your scan. I mean, it's as big as the sky in Montana, and you cannot miss it. It's the only pathology that you see on a scan which is related to dementia. So what we're saying here is that the more white matter disease, the more pathology you appear to have, the more intact these measures are. What does that mean? Well, the interpretation, I think, is fairly obvious. What it is telling us is that the white matter disease is at a minimum. It's not necessarily a marker for the gray matter disease that would otherwise account for loss of semantic knowledge. Okay, so this is the... Uh, data for the cluster determined people. And again, this did not come out exactly as I had thought. What I had thought is that these guys would be really compromised with respect to their animal or their semantic fluency. That would be the conventional wisdom, because what do we expect in patients with Alzheimer's disease? We expect that they'll have amnesia, and we expect that they'll have some language problems. But again, it's these guys, it's the moderate mixed group that had the lowest association index and the um, uh, 
uh, fewest percent of, of items in cluster. And let me just spend a, a moment talking about this Francis and Custera scale. So I'm sure a lot of us know what the Francis and Custera corpus is. So the Francis and Custera corpus is actually kind of antique now. But it's a compendium which I believe gives you a measure of the frequency of words in the English language. Is, 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 that, is that right? Okay. So what we did is that for each of these exemplars, we looked it up in the Francis and Custera corpus, and we just got an average. So what this is telling us is that the higher the number, okay, the more frequent the word is, the exemplar is in the English language. So I'm using this as a proxy. It's not a measure, Francis and Custera, it's not a measure of the prototypicality of a word. That's, that's something very different. But at the time that we did this, okay, that's what we had available. And it's really interesting that not only is the association index low, but the Francis and Custera index is high. So what is this? So, so, so now we're, we're beginning to, to develop a picture with respect to underlying neuropathology. If you have this kind of language impairment as a group, Okay, which of the four lobes do you think you're implicating? Is it the temporal lobe, the frontal lobe? It's certainly not going to be the occipital lobe. Okay, I think we're talking about measurable pathology that may be in, in the temporal lobe, okay, but is also involving the parietal structures as well. And this is really interesting because, again, if you are looking to enter people into a trial, again, who do you want in your trial? Okay, what are the phenotypic characteristics of people that you want in order to effect some kind of treatment? Okay, so this is a slide um, which describes a lot of data that we published some years ago on the PVLT, the Philadelphia Repeatable Verbal Learning Test. There were three uh, identical test forms here. And these are the groups that we uh, articulated low white matter, moderate white matter, severe white matter, and the data points in red, I think, are the ones that I want to spend some time uh, reviewing with you because patients with low white matter disease will make a lot of cued recall intrusions, and that's something which has been well described in the CVLT literature from like a long time ago, from the 1980s into the 1990s. Copious extra list intrusions on the CVLT is one of the three major hallmark features by which you define amnesia by using the CVLT. Okay? And again, the Francis and Custera score here, based upon these intrusions, is highest in this group. Okay? Patients with severe white matter disease, they're actually giving you the best recognition score. Okay? And when you look at the uh, uh, pattern by which patients uh, will ch uh, uh, choose recognition foils, you'll also find uh, uh, measurable differences. So CVLT paradigm, for my money, is really one of the better memory, uh, one, of the one of the better clinical ways in which to, to assess for, for uh, memory. So for the cluster determined groups, we find something which is very interesting, okay? Now, finally, okay, we find that the amnestic people are actually distinguishing them, themselves as having 
singular neuropsychological impairment. But we also find that the moderate mixed guys are also giving us very similar parameters as the amnestic guys. So we have a single domain group of individuals with amnesia who are in fact amnestic. And then we have a multi-domain group who are looking like they have uh, some uh, memory problems, but what else do they have? They also have language problems. They have two things. They have language and memory problems. So what does that tell us about neuropathology? What, what could we infer, what would be the prediction that we would make with respect to the underlying neuropathology? Okay, so um, when I compiled each of the six parameters into three indices, into an executive, a language, and a memory index, and I just converted it into a z-score. What I found, again, this was not what I expected. What really appears to drive the dementia for this group is language impairment. What's driving the dementia for this group is their memory impairment, and what's driving the dementia for this group is their executive impairment, and for these guys, there's not one, not one of the three domains which is statistically different from each other. Now remember, all of these patients are demented. All of these patients have a relatively mild dementia. And here's something else. Every single one of these patients could very well likely have been eligible for a trial, say, for Aricept back in the day, or even now, okay? But what we are finding here, what I think is the most interesting part uh, of this data are these guys. Because again, what I showed you earlier is that this group, the moderate mixed group, and the anesthetic group, okay, are both amnestic. There's no question, okay? But these guys also have language impairment. So what does that mean? Well, I think what we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is evidence for four distinct phenotypic syndromes. So we started out with a group of 225 individuals who were clinically diagnosed using broad clinical parameters. <coughs> we used a neuropsychological protocol that would require less than $100 to administer, not uh, particularly expensive, nor is it particularly complex. And look at the data that we were able to extract from five neuropsychological tests looking at six neuropsychological <laughs> parameters. Not only, so the gross scores gives you the superstructure upon which the latent class outcome is really based. But then when you bevel into each of the tests, or you bevel into each of the parameters, what you find is a much more complex, very rich, uh, uh, way in which to look at neuropsychological impairment. So what I would say here is that we have um, uh, four groups. We have a, I, I'm using the term senile dementia of just because it's sort of like kind of the terminology that, that I grew up with from some years ago. But really, I mean, what we really have here are four distinct uh, presentations. We have a this executive group, where you have a lot of white matter alteration, likely driven by subcortical 
uh, pathology, there's probably some disruption with respect to pathways that project down from the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex through the caudate that find their way back to the thalamus. It's probably a subcortical gating mechanism that may underline this so-called titanic effect, which I showed you. The stenestic group has a completely different profile. Okay, this, these people must have relatively confined neuropathology to the temporal lobe. There is no other explanation. Okay? These guys, I think, is the most, the, this is the most interesting of the four groups. Because of the fact that they have language and memory impairment, what I would presume to be the case is that we have both temporal and parietal involvement. We have, or, and maybe even frontal. We have a much more wide involvement in cortical association area as well as the medial temporal lobe. Uh, so again, who do you want in your trial? Which of these four groups do you think is going to respond best to your medication? These are some of the questions which are now being asked, and in my opinion, this is the type of research that we really need to do in order to understand the context with respect to insidious onset dementia. And as I said earlier, this paradigm is very translational. Okay, I'm showing you this paradigm using patients with dementia, but there's no reason why we couldn't use the same paradigm, the same gross paradigm, with a different patient population, such as patients with MS, patients with stroke, patients with any type of neurobehavioral syndrome. Thank you for your attention. Sure. They're my friends. Okay, so I get asked that a lot. Um, okay, so why did I choose these, 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 these measures? A couple of reasons. First of all, uh, and this is where my friend Mark Bondi and I kind of uh, disagree, because Mark Bondi and Lisa Delano Wood from University of California in San Diego, they're the ones that really have pioneered the use of cluster analysis in looking at MCI data. They like a real robust protocol. They like to have a lot of measures. But what do we know about our neuropsychological measures? They're, 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 they tend to be very correlated with each other. So if I'm not sure if I put an anatompsin here or visual reproduction or I don't even know what other language test I would, I would, I would, I, I would use. Maybe. Uh, a test of maybe semantic comprehension would, 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 would be something. The reason why I chose these tests, in part, is because I have been researching these measures for years, and I have confidence that these tests do yield measures of the constructs which I think that they do uh, use. That's number one. And the second reason is because I did not want to have a large group of measures that would potentially be more confounding because of their intercorrelations. That's the reason. Yeah, I guess what I would comment about that too is if you have, I'm, I also have been interested in shorter groups of measures, looking at shorter uh, protocols right, that contain multiple measures. And I think one of the reasons that you're making me aware of that I've been interested in that is that these disexecutive or 
temporal components really influence the way that these analyses can be done, especially if you don't randomize very meticulously the order in which the, um, the measures are administered. And that's not the usual clinical way that we do things. We have a set protocol, and the, and the order is part of the set protocol. Uh, that's very true. And I'm as guilty of, of, of that uh, as uh, the next person. All these p patients generally got uh, the neuropsych testing done in, in, in a prescribed order. It's interesting because it's um, this is very, very helpful in some of the things that John and I have been mulling over and some of our MS data, and I can share this with you later. Um, the results of one of um, our clinical trials showed that there seemed to be two different types of two different sources of memory impairment, but we haven't tried to actually identify that statistically, and this might actually... So the processing, I know that processing speed figures very prominently. Right. Yeah. yeah. It seems that memory impairment may not, there may be a group of patients that have processing speed impairment causing the memory impairment. Right. A distinct memory impairment. Right. You, didn't you publish a paper uh, maybe yeah. a year or two ago? I think it was in, it was in JCEN. When you co-varied, Parent went away. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 extremely interesting. Yes. Uh, Carolyn Patterson's study on FASD squared uh, surface dementia, uh, surface dyslexia, semantic dementia study. Um, would these patients fall into your mixed group? We have to find out. We would ha we would really need to sit down, and in an a priori sense, make a decision as to what the syndrome really is. What exactly underlies the uh, type of language or aphasic disturbance that we're talking about? And then we would need to select our measures and to see to what extent, again, do this in a very a priori sense. And then uh, we could subject these data. You know, I think that, again, this paradigm could be very useful in the context in which you're talking about. And what comes to mind is that the, there's an incredible amount of discussion about the aphasic syndromes in frontal temporal lobe dementia. I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, my God. I mean, there's like incredible controversy, okay? And I say to myself, well, you know, I mean, let the data decide. You know, pick, pick your tests. There's certainly enough of these patients around and I bet that if you let the data decide using this kind of technique, you'd have a much more heuristically meaningful uh, solution than convening a, a meeting every three years and nuancing, you know, you know I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what the, what, what, what the current terminology is. But, but, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the brain doesn't care what, what it's called. The brain only cares what it is being asked to do and how the brain will obviously respond. So to answer your question, I absolutely think that these kinds of modeling techniques, latent class analysis, cluster analysis, could be extremely helpful. And also with uh, patients with, with MS, even within uh, any one of the major subtypes, any, any one of the major clinical subtypes of, of, of MS, I bet you'd find some differences on a circumscribed protocol of neuropsychological tests. Yes. Um, I think this is really cool, and I just was, I was thinking about um, what is the rationale? So you've convinced me that the right way to go would be to try to break up a population that was sort of lumped together as one thing into distinct profiles. Um, but there are populations in which 
seems to be going the other way. And the, the one that comes to mind is autism, where they, they sort of lump together two things that look completely different, like Asperger's and autism, into... Right, right. So I was wondering, what is the rationale or the benefit of doing that versus this? Because I would think that was sort of a step back. Okay, that's a good question. Okay, so there's the old uh, controversy of lumping versus splitting. Okay, well, I think we know where I am on that. Okay, I like, you know, like to split. I think the answer to the question, first of all, I'm not standing here, it's not my goal to bash clinical, diagnos clinical diagnostic systems for either Alzheimer's disease or any other type of neurobehavioral syndrome. What I do think should, should happen, and I've been talking to my colleagues about this, is that we should find a way to bring both of these ways to characterize our patients together. So what I could imagine, and I, I published this many years ago, is sort of a transaxial system for the, the dementias where on axis one, you would maybe articulate what's driving the dementia from a phenotypic neuropsychological perspective. Say on axis two, you'd have some statement about, about the radiology. And at the time that I wrote the paper in 2004, you know, the availability of radiology then is obviously very different than how it is now. And then on axis three, okay, what's the Framingham stroke risk profile? Because we're talking about about cardiovascular disease is playing a major role here. And then the, when you get to the end of the list, then I wrote, that would make the most sense to call it a dementia of X or a dementia of Y. Now to address your question about, about autism, yeah, I'm aware that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, this is, that this is being done. And you know, this may be a case where it makes sense not to split. Maybe it, make, it, make, it makes case to lump. I personally don't know this literature. I, there was a time when I did know this literature, but, it, it's, but it's, it's gone. I don't, uh, my clinical practice, I used to see a lot, a lot of these kids uh, in a different uh, stage of my career, but I don't see them uh, now. So I'm, I'm aware that, uh, that there's new information, new thinking. But this may be a case where uh, splitting may not necessarily uh, yield more information. I'm not really sure. What I kind of perceive is that the real data here is not so much in the neuropsych data, but it's in the behavioral data. But even then, you may be able to get, uh, you know, very distinct subtypes depending upon how you ask the question and the measures which are brought to bear. Just out of curiosity, did you go backward and figure out where these four groups ended up being diagnosed? I did. Really was it? <laughs> I, uh, did I put that in the paper? I don't remember. <laughs> the question is, did reviewer three ask me to put it in the paper? Okay, I'll come clean. Okay, so here's what happened. Which way does this thing go? So um, it turned out that uh, when I diagnosed somebody with Alzheimer's disease, Virtually all of my virtually all of my statistically determined amnestic people were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. When I diagnosed um, vascular disease, almost all of my disexecutive people were diagnosed with vascular disease. For the two mixed groups, it was 50/50. 50 
Now why it was, I put one person in one group at one time and another person in another group at another time, underscores the entire reason and rationale for doing this kind of work. I used my best clinical intuition. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I think I'm pretty good at it, but I obviously wasn't so good in the sense that I, you know, I mean, I could have thrown them all up in the air and the result would not have been that, 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 that different. But again, it really is very, that's a very interesting question because if you are, you know, the vice president of Big Pharma and you have $200 million to spend, okay, uh, how are you going to spend it? See, what I think pharma should do is accept broadly into your trial, okay, have a selection of measures such as what I'm showing you that would describe the sample, okay? And then your CIRADs, your ADASs, your CIBICs, and all the, all the other things which are used, yeah, th those can be your outcome measures, but you'll have a much better idea as to what you're dealing with since we know that the heterogeneity is really quite prominent in dementia as it is in many other behavioral syndromes. Well, thank you very much. These are all great questions, and I really appreciate your attention.